Game over. And the final score is... We win. Good. You got it. Maybe I should go sit down. No, no, I'm not doing that. That's the title uh, of our study of the book of Revelation. And while I know that life certainly is not trivial like a game, there's a day coming when this game called life will be over, right? And this world as we know it will be no more. Now, God is the one, very clearly, who is orchestrating the final outcomes, the the final score, as it were, okay? But you know what the great thing is? You and I, as players in this game called life, get to choose whether or not we're on the winning side. I'm so happy to hear you say, and the final score is, we win. Because that's all about a choice that you get to make. Winning teams don't very often win just by luck or by chance. They win because they practice hard and because they thoroughly prepare for the game that they're playing. One of the reasons why we're taking our time to work through this book, and I've been jokingly saying we're on week number four of 438 weeks. It's not going to take us that long. But we're taking our time Because there's so much in this book of the Revelation. And i got to confess to you, a couple weeks ago, I felt like the Lord said, just slow down and take your time. You don't have to hurry through this. That even if it takes longer than I thought it was going to, people are not going to be bored. Because it's the Word of God, right? Number one. And it's the Revelation, which is probably one of the most intriguing, if not the most intriguing books in all of the Bible, right? So I got convicted by my own words this week. On the back of your bulletin, there's an opportunity to take some notes. And it says Revelation 3, 1 through 6 to the church at Sardis and Revelation 3, 7 through 13 to the church at Philadelphia. We're only going to do Sardis today. I told Pastor Robin I had a correction to make on the slides. And this happens to me every week. I, earlier in the week, prepare and it comes to... This morning, I get up real early and just go over my notes again. And it's like God opens my brain to all these other thoughts and ideas. And so rather than trying to, no, no, we got to just rush through and visit Philadelphia today. We're just going to do Sardis today, okay? Because you know how sometimes there are portions in the Bible that you read and you just go, man, I can so relate to that. Do you ever have that happen to you? I mean, you read other parts and it's, it's great. It's God's word. But you hit certain parts where you go, oh my God, that's talking to me. You talking to me? Well, this is talking to you, and it's talking to me. And so we're going to settle in on this one today and spend a little bit of time looking at what it says. I have said to you, and I'm probably going to say this every week as we're in the first portion of this book, these seven letters to these seven churches were written to churches at a point in time in history. And the message to those churches was very relevant and pertinent to them in that time. But the beauty of God's word is those letters to those seven churches were also written to the church for all time. And that includes us. And I am under the conviction that those seven letters to seven churches, seven being the complete number, the perfect number, God's number, have another purpose to them. And that is to set for us a standard, a plumb line, as it were, of what God expects personally and corporately to the body of Christ. 
When Jesus comes again, I, for one, want to be ready. How about you? And I think there are things in these seven letters that will prepare us for where we are right now and for what I believe is coming into this world. Some of it not so pretty. So we are taken to heart what these seven letters say because we want to be prepared in this game of life. Right? Here's the other thing. I'm not a predictor, prophet predictor of time. But folks, if we're not in the fourth quarter, time's running out in the third quarter pretty quickly. This thing is starting to wind down. And I don't know where exactly we are in that process. But I believe that it's starting to wind down. So with that as our backdrop, let's look together at what the Apostle John writes to the church at Sardis. And it has been our practice every week and will continue to be. I'm going to ask you to stand as we listen to the Word of God together. And Jim Lewis is going to come and read for us Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Would you stand, please, for the reading of God's Word? To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive. But you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have perceived and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never, excuse me, I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You can have a seat. Thank you, Jim. So let's put up the next slide. So far, um, we've talked about Ephesus and Smyrna, and Pergamum, and Thyatira, and now we're working our way down to Sardis, then we'll do Philadelphia, and then we'll do uh, Laodicea. These churches kind of sit, not not in a perfect circle, obviously, but they were within uh, a region close to each other. Sardis was about 30 miles south of Thyatira. Is that, I don't know, is that about as far as Brighton is from here, or Broomfield? About that, right? So you get a little distance as to how far these places were apart. This is another wealthy city. Several of these cities that we've looked at have been wealthy. This one was known for its textile industry, and they had some special dyes that they made there to dye cloth. Um, Wool was a big thing. They also had a group of artisans there who were known for making exquisite jewelry. I mean, all over this area, they were known for their jewelry. You wouldn't say he went to Jared's. You'd say he went to Sardis because that's where the best stuff was found, okay? They were famous for this. Okay. The worship there, next slide, was 
to the goddess Diana, also known as Artemis. I always thought Artemis was a man's name, but I, I guess it was a woman's name. These are some of the ruins from that temple. Now, in the distance, this temple sat in what was called Lower Sardis, but that was a little bit of a misnomer. In the distance, you see that, that mountain range, and off, you can't see it real well, but off to the left side of that mountain range was something that was known as the Acropolis, okay? And um, that's important because Sardis was a very strategic military locale, all right? The city sat up really high, so even though that's lower Sardis in the front of the picture, the whole city was up on a plateau and then had that mountain and that acropolis, that, that wall that was, some scholars think the thing was 800 feet high. Anyhow, the, the mountain range and the wall sat 1,500 feet above Sardis, and it made it very, very impenetrable in terms of a, a fortress and a strategic military location. Next slide. Sardis, though, was also known for its necropolis, the Acropolis and the necropolis. Necropolis means graveyard. This city was called the Cemetery of a Thousand Hills because not only were they these kind of graves, but next slide, there were these mounds. Now, we know, I know that picture is a little blurry, but that's the best we could do with what we could find. But they had these little burial mounds all over the hillside. And these things could be seen because they sat up where kind of the mountain range was. They could be seen like from five miles away. All right? Now, as we dig into this passionate portion of scripture about Sardis, I want you to remember this point. Each of the cities written to, there was something about their physical condition or their situation or their circumstance that played into what was written to each of them. Because it was God's way, I believe, of getting their attention and making the message he was delivering to them very personable and very relatable. Okay? It would be, uh, try this one on and see if you can respond accordingly because I think you'll know the answers. If one of these letters was written to us, and it said, to the church at Loveland, I know that I am your primary sweetheart. Why would that mean anything to us? Because Loveland is the sweetheart city. And what if it said, I have this that I'm proud of you for. You have stood against the flood of false teaching and have endured. Why would that mean something to us? 1976, Big Thompson flood. And so if that letter were written to us, we'd go, oh, oh yeah, we can, we get that. It was the same for each of these cities. There was something about what had happened in their history or about their city physically that spoke to them as people. So while this one of the seven letters is not addressed to us specifically, I think this one has some amazing pertinent things that so clearly apply to us. And so Let's look at this little portion of six verses. To the angel of the church of Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this. Seven, once again, is the perfect number. It's the complete number. It's the number of God. And this is a, a way to say God is absolutely sovereign over this church and he has absolute wisdom about this church and what's going on in it. They understood Seven spirits, seven stars, God's in control, God knows what's going on, okay? You have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. 
Some versions say you have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. It's as if Jesus is saying to this church, others may think you're alive. You may even think you're alive. You may think you're alive and well. But I can see that you are just like that cemetery on a thousand hills. You're just like that necropolis. I can see as plainly as anybody who walks past this place that you're dead. The the vivid imagery of this thing was, was just like a punch between the eyes. You think you're alive. You've got this great reputation. But in reality, you're dead. You see, Sardis was a very self-satisfied, self-sufficient city and church. The impact of the city affected the church. Sardis was a place that there was no real outside opposition. You know, some of these letters, they had to battle against the Jews who... The writer said it was like the synagogue of Satan. Um, In Smyrna, they had economic sanctions against them because they wouldn't worship the emperor. Sardis had it easy. They didn't have any internal heresy. You don't see written that they were battling the doctrine of the Nicolaitans or the teaching of Balaam as was in Pergamum or they're not tolerating that prophetess Jezebel like Thyatira was. They didn't have outside opposition and they weren't wrestling or battling against inside internal heresy. And so their life was one of relative ease. And because of that, it caused them to live on their past deeds, their past accomplishments, and they settled there just fine. Now, I am all for rejoicing in our past. Are you? We should be. I think God is all for rejoicing in our past to to think of, to remember and to celebrate our history with God. The great things that God has done. That's one of the power of testimonies to gather together and to remind ourselves of what God has done in our lives, in our midst. Doesn't that build your faith when you hear testimonies? You see, it causes us to go, God, you did that. Do it again. So I'm not for one moment saying, hey, just throw the past away. It's irrelevant. It's immaterial. It's not. It's really, really important. But here's the point. God is a God of now more than he is a God of back then. God is a God of now. Relationship with God should be current, not just or exclusively past tense. If every time we got together and we told that same story of what God did in 1968, and that's the only story we have, there's something wrong, isn't there? with our relationship with God, with a current, ongoing, present relationship with Him. He is the God of now, not just then. Romans 10, 17 says, Faith comes by hearing, not by having heard. There is a sense in which the Scripture, I think, clearly teaches that our relationship, our faith with God, needs to have a living, ongoing vibrancy in it, to it, in the now. You see what I'm saying? Does that make the past irrelevant or immaterial? Not for one minute. But our relationship needs to be in the now. Without using the words I'm about to use, it's as if this letter says this. To the church at Sardis, from Jesus Christ, who was and is and is to come, to the church at Sardis, who was. Is that a horrible indictment or what? 
Would you ever want that said about you? We gather here every Sunday morning and we change the sign out front to say, here lies Church of the Good Shepherd. I'm not coming and I'm the pastor, if that's what the sign would say. You get the point? It's about now. You think you're doing great, Sardis? Jesus says otherwise. And you see, I think this letter speaks to us. It speaks to Loveland and to the churches in Loveland because that's one of our biggest wrestles. Not that we're dead, but we have this propensity, this tendency to want to coast. Back in the mid to late 80s, I read a book called Taking Your Cities for God by a man named John Dawson. And in this book, John Dawson talked about the importance of studying the history of your city. And so I did that. I spent months researching the history of Loveland. How did the gospel first come to Loveland? What were the conditions when Loveland was first founded or formed? What were the original settlers like? And what happened in the course of the early history of our city? John Dawson's point was, you need to understand God's intention for a place. What was God's original plan? And then you need to understand what's the enemy's counterfeit. What's the enemy's attack against that plan? You see, I discovered in, in my study that, and I'm convinced of this, God's plan for Loveland was to be a place of great peace. Jeremiah talks about places that are habitations of shepherds where they can properly, appropriately, rest their flocks. One of the things I discovered when I studied the history of Loveland, when, when this area was settled and all around us, miles and miles and miles around us, as settlers came to, to pioneer and to, to land in Colorado and to establish themselves, there was Indian skirmishes and uprisings and battles and killings all over the place. But there's not one recorded in the Thompson Valley. I believe that's because God's intention for this place is to be a place of peace. Isn't that wonderful? Here's, here's the counterfeit. Next slide. Our motto is, life is good in Loveland. There's only one thing wrong with that. The enemy of the great life is not the bad life. The enemy of the great life is the good life. Because we are so want, we are so prone to settle for less than God's best. And as I, as I studied this and as I looked through personal experience, I believe that the counterfeit to Loveland being that place of peace is the enemy has worked hard to bring these three things into our city. Loveland battles against apathy, complacency, and lethargy. Those are counterfeits to God's peace. But I've watched for 30-some years as that being the battle, that being the thing that wants to grab our hearts. And it's so easy if we're not careful, folks, to fall short of God's best plan and purpose by settling for the good life. It's almost like coming to these mountains and saying, I think I'll just stop here. That looks like too much work. Not for one moment to say that God can't settle you in a place. I'm talking about coming to opposition, coming to resistance, coming to something you know God wants you to break through and saying, nah, I don't think so. I think I'm fine right here. We're not talking striving and climb that mountain. If God doesn't tell you to climb a mountain, then all you're doing is wasting energy, right? 
talking about settling for less than God's best. Never wrong to settle where God tells you to settle. It's just wrong to quit. And in Loveland, we have this tendency. We have to fight against those things. Ah, it's close enough. Good enough. That's all right. We can't do that. I know your deeds. You have a name that you're alive, but you're dead. you think you're alive, but you're dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains, which were about to die. For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. Wake up. Keep watch. Both of those words in the Greek are in present tense, which means... Keep it up. Keep after it constantly. Make sure that you stay awake. Make sure that you keep watching. This was important to Sardis for this reason. There were two times in the history of that city where they were conquered. You know why they were conquered? Because the guards sitting up on that Acropolis in that picture with the mountain fell asleep. They fell asleep. And so the enemy came in when no one was watching when they slept and surprise attacked them. What a poignant reminder that would be to Sardis, huh? Wake up! Oh, yeah, like those guards were supposed to be awake when we were infiltrated and overtaken before. Strengthen what remains. Repent and turn from your wrong. But it doesn't just stop there in the negative. Turn from all that you've done wrong. It's also a message that says, focus and build upon the good. Build upon what God has already done. I have a little sign up in my office upstairs that says, it was Chuck Swindoll, I think, who said this. It's never too late to start doing the right thing. Aren't you glad for that? See, it doesn't matter how much bad or wrong you've done. It's never too late to start doing the right thing. That has given me more hope and encouragement over the years than I could ever, ever want to tell you. God can and still does work through the smallest amount of faith and or repentance or turning, whatever you want to call it. Whatever move it is that you make in his direction, an inkling of that is plenty for God to start working upon and working in and working through. Are you glad for that, bud? I'm glad for that in my life. I'm so glad for that. Verse 3, remember and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. Remember and repent. Again, present tense words. Continue to remember and continue to repent. It's the theme of all seven letters. Folks, it's the theme of Christianity, isn't it? We need to remember and we need to repent. Not, not beat ourselves up and not always just feel so horrible about ourselves because we're not doing enough or good enough or any such thing. But we need to always have that, that heart towards God, that ear towards Him, that desire to say, Lord, when I find myself out of phase, out of tune with what you're doing, what you're wanting, I'm turning back. Because I, I'm not coming to some mean, angry judge. I'm coming to the Father in the story of the prodigal son. I'm coming to the one who will run down the lane to meet me, to hug me, to kiss me, to embrace me, to put the ring on my finger and the robe and to kill the fatted calf. That's who we come back to. That's who he is. And yet at the same time, there's some sobering words here. Remember and repent. If you don't wake up, I'm going to come like a thief. That's reference back to Matthew chapter 24, verses 43 and 44 that says this. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed the house to be broken into. 
For this reason, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think He will. That's not to scare us in a bad way, but I do think it's to sober us. Because our faith isn't something that we play at. Well, you know, when the game gets down to the fourth quarter or the bottom line, then we'll start playing hard. That's how you lose. If you watched Ohio State play Nebraska last night, you'll know that's exactly what happened. Never mind, I don't want to go there. I already did. We need to be watchful. We need to be waiting, okay? That's what God calls us to. Make yourself a note. We're not going to take the time this morning. Go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and read verses 1 through 11. It's that entire message about this world saying, oh, everything's fine, peace, safety, blah, 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 nothing to worry about. But it talks about what's coming and what's coming against us and how we need to be ready and we need to be prepared and we need to encourage one another, it says at the end of that passage, and build each other up. Because this thing was never meant to be fought alone, was it? That's why we need each other. That's why the body of Christ is so important. That's why corporately gathering, whether it's Sunday mornings or in a midweek Bible study or as men or as women or in small groups, whatever it looks like, youth, children, Across all ages, we need each other. We need to encourage each other in this journey, in this fight. Now, I want to be clear. The call here is not, hey, just work harder. Do something, even if it's wrong. It's not what this is talking about, all right? It's a call to submit more fully to Jesus. It's a call to seek Him wholeheartedly. And then to do what He says to do, to to respond as He directs. But not just, hey, get up off your duff and start doing something. You know how much time you could waste living like that? (laughs) Or should I say, how much time have you wasted living like that? Because we all do it. It's about seeking God wholeheartedly, full of faith and with a deep commitment. All right, let's keep reading. Verse 4. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes thus will be clothed in white garments. There's a few people, this indictment against the church. Hey, you think you're alive? You think you're fine? You're dead. Doesn't fit everybody. There's a few. There's a small remnant there. Is a small remnant enough for Christ to work in and through? Are you glad for that one too? I am. See, he doesn't need everybody. He wants everybody, but he doesn't need everybody if there are a few who will take this to heart. You know, you read that and you go, man, this is a bad situation. Wouldn't you agree this is a bad situation? I would. Is it a hopeless situation? There's always a difference between a bad situation and a hopeless situation, isn't there? One person turned towards God is the potential for hope. That's what I think this is saying to us. There are those who have not soiled their garments. They haven't mixed with the pagan practices, which wasn't a strong influence in the city, uh, but it was there. They have not done that. Here's something ironic. If you went to show up or go to one of these pagan festivals, if you had dirty clothes on, they wouldn't let you in. And yet, Jesus is saying, because of you're trying to have one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom, your garments are dirty. But he's not saying you can't come in. He's saying, here, let me do something about your soiled garment. That's the point, okay? This isn't, oh my gosh, we better kind of spiff ourselves up and clean ourselves off and wipe ourselves off because, no, this is about understanding that 
those who have not soiled their garments only by the grace of God and by continuing to yield to Him and allow Him to work in their heart, to Him they will be clothed in white garments. White, a symbol of holiness, purity, righteousness, and victory. But it doesn't come by your hard work. It comes by appropriating what Jesus has already done for us, right? Things like this. He made him, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Do you have to work hard to get there? You have to believe. You have to have faith. Next. But by his doing, God's doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Once again, folks, it's not about a work we do for ourselves. It's about appropriating and believing the work that he's already done for us. Now, there's a little bit of a tough one here in verse 5. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments and I will not erase his name from the book of life. Is it quiet in here or is it just me? It's quiet. It's quiet. Now, I'm so tempted, but I won't. But I want to ask you, how many of you have lost any sleep over that? Okay, Bud has. Um, it's a little phrase that has been debated for centuries. It has kept Christians up at night. What does it mean? See, this is where understanding the context of the Bible really helps us. To understand the history of Sardis gives us great understanding to this scripture. In the city of Sardis, when you were born, your name was recorded in a public register as a citizen. And when you died, your name was erased out of the book of the living because you were no longer alive. You see, in context, this is not a threat. Better watch it. This is a promise. This is an assurance. It's not about what you're going to lose. It's an assurance. You see, in Sardis, when you died, your name was erased. The message here was, Christian, when you die, are you dead? No. You're still alive. You've just moved from this life, this abundant life, into eternal life. That's the message of this. You see, the scripture clearly teaches us that death can't separate us from God. Death can't separate us from his love. Can it? I don't think so. Romans 8, 38 and 39. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor, any, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus himself said this. Truly, truly, I say to you, this is John 5, 24. He who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. And does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death and into life. John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. That of all that he's given me, I lose nothing. But I will raise it up on the last day. And finally, in John 10, 28 and 29, I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. 
Isn't that good news? That's assurance, folks. This issue about being erased from the book of life was to contrast what happened when you died in Sardis and your name was erased from the book of the living to assure you that if you belong to him, your name is in that book of life. But before we get too, oh, I don't know, all Sardis-like and put our feet up and just uh, start thinking the wrong way, like, hey, you know, I prayed that prayer 73 years ago and I'm cool and... There is a a right way and a wrong way to view salvation. See, the, the right way, I believe, is to ponder, to think about what Christ has done for me, to save me. And he did it all, correct? He did it. It's not by works. It's by grace. It's by faith that you and I are saved. And I rest in that fact that I don't have to earn this. I don't have to work for this. But I also believe that as a person who knows Christ, there's a lordship issue that Jesus is working into me and into you that says, as I am his, I respond to his voice. I obey the voice of his spirit. And I seek him to understand why he's made me, what he's created me for and what he's made me to do. And as I understand that, I do it. You see, the scripture, I believe, so clearly, inseparably links faith and obedience, believing and obeying. You can't pull them apart because they go so well together. Folks, we live in a spiritual tension. Marvin, are you here? Marvin. Oh, Marvin. There's Marvin. Thank you. Marvin's going to help me illustrate something, okay? We live in a spiritual tension. Not a bad tension, like, oh my gosh, everything is so tense. But a a good tension, okay? A healthy tension. It's the kind of tension that keeps a guitar string in tune. So, Marvin, play us a note. Uh, You see, what that represents is someone who puts their spiritual feet up and goes, you know, obedience, schmobedience, it doesn't matter. God doesn't care. I'm saved. I prayed that prayer 43 years ago, and I'm cool. That's not good tension. On the other end of the spectrum, don't break your string. That's the person who strives to try and earn and please, and I got to do more, I got to do more, so God still loves me. Neither of those is good. What we're after is. It takes a proper tension for that string to stay in tune. That's the tension we need to learn to live in as Christians. We don't put our feet up and and rest in the sense of, it doesn't matter how I live, doesn't matter if I obey, doesn't matter, nothing matters. I prayed that prayer. But we also don't go over to the other extreme and live in this rat race of trying harder, doing more to, to earn something from God. Marvin, thank you for helping me with that. That's the tension that we need to learn to live in. Folks, salvation should not be taken lightly. That's the point, okay? Saving grace is free, but it ain't cheap. Jesus said in Matthew 3, 8, we need to bear fruit in keeping with our repentance. If something's really happened in us, then it should change the way we live, think, act, and behave, right? 
We need to continually seek to yield to the grace of God, not just the saving grace of God, that's the free gift part, but we need to, to yield to this kind of grace of God too that has the power to change us. Titus 2.11 says, The grace of God has appeared, first of all, bringing salvation to all men, but there's also a grace that does this. It instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. That's another part of the grace of God that is the thing that helps us stay in tune with the Spirit of God and His will and His purpose for us. You see, we need to take to heart these words from Hebrews chapter 2. For this reason, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? It doesn't talk about reject. It says neglect. Folks, the Bible talks about consequences to neglecting this free gift that we've been given. And it's no small thing. What about rejecting salvation? Can, can, can you do that? Personally, I land more in an Armenian camp than a Calvinistic camp. What does that mean? That means I am more on the side of God has given us a free will to choose Christ or not, rather than you just, you're predestined and you had no choice in the matter. Now, I believe that willfully rejecting Christ, purposefully hardening our, hardening our hearts against Him once we've said yes to Him as Savior and Lord, I technically think it can be done, but I think it's really hard to do because it is hard to ignore the voice of the Spirit, isn't it? that convicting voice that is calling you back. And if you ever wrestle with, is my name being erased? If you have any conviction in you at all, the answer is no, your name is not being erased. You can take that one to the bank, okay? Why would a genuine follower of Christ ever do that in the first place? I Personally, I think there's a much greater, greater percentage of people who appear to have rejected their salvation that never really had it in the first place. For whatever reason, I'll pray the prayer, blah, 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 blah. But nothing happened in their heart. Okay? So, yeah, I think it's possible to reject salvation, but it's a really, really difficult thing to do. You don't lose your salvation like, oh, I lost my car keys, where did they go? It's not that easy. But if somebody's, pardon me, stupid enough, I guess I think maybe they could. All right, let me wrap this up. I will not erase his name from the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To confess his name before his father. The Greek there is the word homo legeo, and it means to acknowledge before a judicial court. You are called to stand up in front of the judge and state your case. So it's not just some little thing I said in my heart one day. There's a sense of, of public declaration to this. And Jesus promises us that if we stand for him and say, yes, Jesus, Lord and Savior of my life, and make that known, his promise, his assurance to you and me is when we stand before God someday, he's going to go, yep, can't humble Lord God. Not that God wouldn't have known who I already was. That's bad theology. But Jesus will agree with the truth that I am his before his father. Are those the words you long to hear? Man, those are the words we all long to hear. And Christ promises that to us. All right. So today's Communion Sunday. All right. 
and we've afforded a good amount of time for this. Um, Rob, I don't know who's helping, but if you guys could come and, and get this ready, that would be wonderful. I want to just quickly, as, as we prepare our hearts for this moment, I want to speak uh, to the church for just a minute, okay? If you're here and you're a believer, you're a follower of the Lord Jesus, take your spiritual pulse this morning, will you? Take your spiritual pulse. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, test yourself to see if you're in the faith. It's a good thing on a regular basis to test ourselves, to take a look at how am I doing spiritually? Am I, am I alive? Am I on the critical list? Am I vibrant? Am I healthy? Where am I? I want to encourage you to do that today, all right? Don't rest in your past. Don't sit here today and go, Pastor Kent, what are you talking about? I prayed that prayer when Billy Graham was in town in 1973. What's God been doing lately? What do you mean what's been God doing lately? Didn't you just hear me? I prayed that prayer in 73. God is a God of the now, not just the then. Relationship with him should be current and vibrant and alive today. So take that pulse. Don't strive to perform, but take a look at your life and and where you're at with God. Stay current. Stay in the now with him. I read this long ago. I'm not sure where. But sometimes the greatest resistors of the move of God today are the people who are a part of the last move of God because they don't want anything to change and they liked it the way it was. We have to have hearts bigger than that, don't we? We have to stay current with what the Spirit is saying, speaking to us today, right now in our own lives. And I want to encourage you today as you come and commune, what a perfect time to to examine yourself and, and see if you're in the now or are you resting on your past and your past reputation? The encouragement in this scripture, though, is to build on, number one, who you are in Christ. Build on that. Open your heart to God, revealing to you more and more of just who you are in Jesus, who you are as his child. And then build on where you're at with him. Lord, you're doing all these wonderful things, but I I see over here I need some work. Would you help me? And if you pray the prayer, would you help me? Is there anybody in this room that thinks God will go, I'll get back to you on that? I'll think about it. Or will God look at the sincerity of your heart and my heart and say, yeah, I'll be happy to to partner with you to, to build on that foundation that's already there. Build on what you've been given by him. Lord, I've got gifts and talents that have just been sitting over here on the sidelines and it's time to get back in the game. It's time to put my helmet back on and, and get in there and run the plays that you've called me to run in the position you've called me to play. Don't let apathy or lethargy or complacency ever be a hindrance. If that strikes a chord in you today, oh gosh, apathy, lethargy, and complacency, I've, I've been guilty. Wake up, turn back. And you know, there's, there's great irony in this. God moves on the slightest little effort. And if you think about battling with apathy, lethargy, and complacency, it's hard to do anything, isn't it? All you have to do is acknowledge that, God, that's been one of my problems. And the Lord will move. He'll start to work. So that's my message to the church. If there's anybody here today who has never given their life to Jesus, this could be your day. This could be the day when you confess him, as this scripture says. 
before men so that when you die and it's all over and it's game over for you personally, not just for this big world, that you'll stand before God and Jesus will confess you. He'll acknowledge you as one of his own. If you've never done that, think long and hard about today being your day, that God brought you here to to hear this moment that you need Jesus in your life. You need to make him Lord and Savior. Ken, I don't know how to do that. Just everybody close your eyes for a minute, okay? If you've never made that commitment, you've never made that decision, just pray this prayer after me. Lord God, I am here today. I acknowledge that I am a sinner. I need a Savior. I believe that Jesus died on the cross in my place to forgive my sins. I receive him today. I confess him today, not only as my Savior, but as my Lord. And I thank you, God, for what he's done for me. I receive it in his name. Amen. If you just prayed that prayer, you're in. But you need to tell somebody. Because a decision like that isn't just a private matter of the heart. You need to confess it before men. So, When you take communion today, tell one of these guys who's serving you bread. Come tell me, tell your friend, but tell somebody, all right? Because we want to be able to follow up and help you understand what you've just done and how to grow in that relationship. Okay. Father, we thank you again for your word, for the the life that's in your word, the, the truth that's in that word, the power that helps us examine ourselves in light of what you call us to. We are thankful, Lord, that you are a God who sets standards, but we're more thankful for the fact that you're a God who gives the grace to live up to the things that you call us to as we yield ourselves to you. Make these next few moments, Lord, meaningful and important in our walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen. You're welcome to come and commune. you today. You know what that, that means? Good word. Benediction. Good word. I have a good word I want to remind you of today as you leave. It's fine to celebrate the past, to remember, but God is a God of the now, not just the then. And there's one other thing that many times you and I need to do with our past, and that is to forget it to let it lie and to move on. So I just want to encourage you today, whatever it was, whatever it is that you've dealt with here during this communion time, leave it. It's a new day, folks. God sets you free of that stuff. You march on, you go forward in a new place, okay? Because that's the truth of what his word says. You don't keep lugging that stuff around. You lay it down and you move forward because it is a new day celebrate the great work that God has done in your hearts. Maybe it was 43 years ago, but there was a great work that he did today in you as well. Celebrate that and look forward 
to the greatness of God showing up tomorrow and the next day and the next day. Because God is at work. He's moving in his church. He's moving in you. I can see it. And I'm thankful for that. Amen. So Lord, we bless you for the, the mystery of the Christian life and yet the certainty we have at the same time. Lord, we choose today to, to leave behind those things that we've examined and asked your help for and your forgiveness from. And we walk out these doors today in a new day, in a new place, thankful for the saving work of Jesus, for the forgiveness that there is of our sins, for the newness of life that we walk in and are destined to walk in every single day as your children. Lord, teach us how to believe that and to live that. We thank you for this new day and a new tomorrow and a new next day and for all the great and wonderful things that you are doing to bring us into line, to to apply the proper tension in our lives so that we are spiritually attuned with you, walking with you in this newness of life, this abundant life that you promise us. We bless you and thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Be blessed. Have a great week. See you next Sunday.